Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is a special edition of Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, KQED's senior politics editor. And I'm Marisa Lagos, politics reporter at KQED. We're bringing you special live coverage tonight with analysis of today's news that Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy is retiring at the end of July. Yeah, kind of a political earthquake out of D.C. today. Kennedy, of course, is a California native. He's born uh, in Sacramento, and he's been seen as a critical swing vote on the court for uh, or over a decade or two on issues ranging from abortion to gay rights. And his retirement at the end of July is going to give President Donald Trump a second nomination to the high court. It's a rare opportunity for any president, and it's going to let Trump cement a conservative majority on the court if he can get that pick through. Uh, And that could have very long-lasting implications on issues like reproductive rights, but also voting rights. Yeah, and a whole lot of other things. And we're going to unpack Kennedy's legacy and what his retirement could mean for the next half hour. We have a number of guests, and we're starting with Michael Hunter Schwartz. He's dean of the McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, where Justice Kennedy often spoke and taught. He joins us from KQED's Sacramento Bureau. Dean Schwartz, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And also joining us now from NPR's Culver City offices, we have Loyola Marymount Law Professor Jessica Levinson. She's an expert on election law, a close watcher of the Supreme Court. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Dean Schwartz, let's begin with you. Uh, Some personal notes, if we could get this uh, to begin with. We're going to get into his legal legacy, of course, in just a moment. But uh, as I mentioned, uh, Kennedy was born in Sacramento, had a long connection with your law school. Tell us about that history. So Justice Kennedy has taught for us for 34 years straight with just one exception. When he first Uh, came to McGeorge. He taught in our night program and taught constitutional law while he was a practicing attorney. When he went on the Ninth Circuit, he continued to teach constitutional law for us. And then when he went to the Supreme Court, he switched to teaching in our summer study abroad program um, at the University of Salzburg in Austria. Why do you think he was so committed to the school and to teaching? Uh, I think he loves teaching. I've seen him in action, and he is a dazzlingly good teacher and takes great joy in it. Um, And I think his loyalty to McGeorge, he had a very close relationship uh, with Gordon Shaver, who was the dean at the time uh, when he first started teaching at McGeorge. Um, And so that's part of it. And part of it is he is so committed to Sacramento. He is such a great supporter of our city, very connected to the City Bar Association, attended the 100th anniversary event uh, this April. Um, he is just very passionate about his hometown. And what kind of a teacher was he? I mean, is he someone that students really liked? Uh, they loved him. One of my favorite things as I travel around the country and meet our alums 
um, is hearing them talk about how much they enjoyed his class. I had the great pleasure to see him in action in Salzburg this past summer, and he was great. Um, I'd love to tell you one quick story. He, he um, called on a student and asked her what law professors ask their students all the time. If you were the lawyer, what would you argue? And the student gave her answer. And Justice Kennedy said, well, that really wasn't what I was looking for. It's better. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's so kind for law school. You don't hear about that a lot. I mean, I think that, you know, for those of us who watch the court from afar and don't get a chance to interact with these justices, there's something of an enigma. We know more about them sometimes from, you know, the decisions they write. Um, but it sounds, I, I know he's been described by others on the court, too, as, as very gentlemanly. Is that, does that square with what you've seen in the classroom? Uh, not only in the classroom, but also in my interactions with him. He, he what I would say, ridiculously calls me boss when we talk on the phone. <laughs> um, and he's, he's very kind to people. He remembers everyone's names. If he bumps into an alumnus that he hasn't seen for 20 years, he can remember that alumnus's name. Um, he really is a personable, caring, an incredibly humble person. He, uh, of course, does uh, have deep roots in California. I spoke to, actually to one of your professors, Clark Kelso, earlier today and asked him what impact he thought uh, the fact that uh, Justice Kennedy came from California had on him uh, in terms of his jurisprudence. Here, what he had to say. Individual liberties, a tolerance for differences between people. Uh, I, I think there is something distinctive about uh, the California experience. Um, and that was Clark Kelso, who has played a big role in California, too, as the federal receiver of the prison uh, system here. And, and clerk for Justice Kennedy when he was with the Ninth Circuit yeah. as well. Well, I want to bring um, Jessica Levinson in, and I think I misrepresented you are at Loyola Law School. Um, Jessica, I, I know we're talking a lot about uh, Justice Kennedy as a man, but obviously his legacy is around the legal opinions he's shaped. And he's being praised really as the swing voice on the court. I'm curious if you see it that way or not, because I think, you know, a lot of these justices evolve over the years as well. Well, I think there's no question that the court he's retiring from is the court on which he was the swing vote. And I don't think that that was his choice. And I don't think it was necessarily predictable when he was first nominated to the court. But based on his eight colleagues, he really did become the person to whom advocates always joked, you know, instead of submitting a brief, I just want to write a letter that says, Dear Justice Kennedy, I hope you'll look with favor on my legal argument. And in part, that happened because... Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, who was in a lot of ways the swing vote, retired, and that left Justice Anthony Kennedy in the middle. Um, I do think that it's worth mentioning that while he is a moderate, he is a moderate conservative. And so his voting record is one where the vast majority of the time he does vote with the conservative wing of the court. Yeah, as we many people know, he wrote the Citizens United uh, opinion, for example, that uh, many say led to the flood of cash into campaigns. Uh, so obviously not one that liberals were happy with. No, there's a number of decisions. I mean, y you both know that I am less than thrilled with the Citizens United decision, but there's plenty of decisions dealing with voting rights, dealing with the Second Amendment, dealing with criminal justice, where you can absolutely say that Justice Anthony Kennedy was a conservative jurist. But 
I think it's important for us to look at two things when we're thinking about his legacy. The first is the votes on the big cases that we can all talk about, where he did seem like a more liberal jurist when we look at his cases dealing with gay rights, when his cases dealing with reproductive rights, when we look at his cases dealing with affirmative action. But I think behind the scenes, the second thing we really need to look at is he very likely had a moderating influence on how big or narrow many of the decisions are. We only need to look to the past seven days to see the court made a number of really quite narrow decisions, for instance, in the area of partisan gerrymandering. And my guess is that we could look to Justice Kennedy and he just wasn't ready to make a bigger, bolder, more conservative decision. That is very likely to change next term. So what you're saying is that he had this moderating influence on some of these still conservative decisions, but they may not have gone as far as they could have. I mean, uh, well, I wonder also, could you say the other way, that perhaps to, for the liberals to get his vote, they couldn't go quite as far as they wanted to go? I think that's exactly right. And we need to look no further than a few weeks ago, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, where there was, you know, famously the Colorado caker, a cake maker, excuse me, who didn't want to make a cake for the gay couple to celebrate their wedding. And there was an excruciatingly narrow opinion that essentially only applied to this cake maker. It didn't answer the big question that the court is going to have to answer. And I think, unfortunately, now we know how it will answer, which is, what do you do when religious rights clash with anti-discrimination laws? And my guess is that in order to keep a coalition together, and because of Justice Kennedy, we basically, we didn't have an answer. The liberals didn't have the answer they wanted, which is anti-discrimination laws, Trump. And the conservatives didn't have the answer they wanted, which is that religious liberties will Trump. We uh, talked to Kate Kendall earlier today. She's executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, has been involved in many of the LGBT uh, rights issues. And, you know, I asked her what impact she thought uh, Justice Kennedy had had on the court. It was the first time that a justice Uh, and really a conservative justice, saw the fullness of our humanity and embraced and supported it. So very much, uh, obviously, uh, appreciative of that evolution uh, that uh, that, uh, the justice had. And and I wonder, Michael Schwartz, just quickly, do do you feel that uh, he evolved, based on what you know, from the time he was on the Ninth Circuit to, to where he is today? Um, I think definitely. Um, And and I think gay rights are a great example. I think the more he met people and the more he sort of appreciated um, difference, the more he started opening his mind up. And, uh, and we see that in the evolution of, of his jurisprudence. And so um, I, think, I think it really was a, 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 an area in which he evolved in some ways with a, with a significant chunk of our country. Well, and of course, coming out of California, where that evolution happened very quickly here. Um, (laughs) uh, Another, uh, I want to bring in now Jennifer Duffy. She's senior editor at the Cook Political Report, who covers the Senate. Jennifer, thanks for coming on tonight. Thanks for having me. So we haven't even touched on one of the biggest uh, sort of political fights that is already brewing over his retirement, which is around abortion rights and whether a more conservative court could lead to either, you know, a reversal of Roe v. Wade or at least uh, a chipping away of that. I'm just curious. um, You've been on the ground in Washington, D.C. today. What has been the reaction like? And um, I mean, is abortion kind of the first thing that comes up when people are talking about this uh, pending confirmation (laughs) battle? Um, actually, uh, to, to a degree, I mean, some of the women's rights groups have brought it up, 
But from what I've seen from members of the Senate is the first fight is when are they going to consider this nominee? Obviously, Democrats have decided to um, demand that they wait until after the election. Um, Republicans, uh, you know, Senator Grassley, who chairs the Judiciary Committee, said, we'll deal with it when we have a name. Um, and he said he has had no input yet with the White House on who that might be. So honestly, right now, they're a little bit less concerned with issues and more about whether or not this happens before or after the election. Well, and that reference, of course, goes back to Merrick Garland, whom President Obama named when uh, Justice Scalia died suddenly. And Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, said, no, uh, we're in an election year here and we have to wait until after the voters have weighed in. So are Democrats saying, well, it would be hypocritical for the Republicans to go ahead with this before the election? Of course they are. Um, And, you know, Republicans' response was, the Biden rule, which is what they sort of fell back on when they made that decision, only referred to presidential elections <laughs> and that this isn't one. This is a midterm. But this argument gets to a more basic political fact, and that is how the party's bases react to this. I mean, one of the reasons McConnell sort of didn't move Merrick Garland uh, forward is that when you ask Republican voters what their number one issue is in an election, they will say the Supreme Court. Now, Democrats, their base is really fired up, and they they think that this fight will fire them up more. So, honestly, right now this game of chess is being played around November. How much uh, appetite do you think Democrats have uh, for really trying to do whatever they can to do a full court press on this and either, you know, delay the vote or upend it altogether? Well, I think that they realize that that there is both risk and reward here. Um, One, it's it's interesting that after... um, the decision on the travel ban came down earlier this week. I started to get fundraising emails lamenting the Supreme Court seat they gave away. Yeah, Jennifer, yes. you know what? I, I, I apologize. We're, we yes, have to take no a problem. quick break and uh, hold that thought on that fundraising letter that you got. <laughs> uh, we were going to come back to you, but right now we're listening to special coverage from Political Breakdown. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to this special edition of Political Breakdown. I am Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And we're bringing you this special coverage on a day that just as Anthony Kennedy announced that he is retiring, a decision that is rocking the national political landscape just a few months before the November midterm election. And it also hands President Donald Trump an opportunity to reshape the highest court with a solid conservative majority. With us, Michael Hunter Schwartz. He's dean of the McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, where Justice Kennedy uh, teaches. Jessica Levinson, professor of law at Loyola. She joins us from Los Angeles. And Jennifer Duffy, senior editor at the Cook Political Report. She covers the Senate uh, in D.C. And uh, Jennifer, I'm sorry I cut you off. You were talking about that fundraising letter you got from Democrats. Well, I mean, I've gotten several of them since the travel ban decision came down. And basically what they say is we gave away a Supreme Court seat or we let Republicans steal one and we can't let this happen again. So is is our Democrats up for the fight? Yes, they are. The danger in having the fight is waking up the Republican base who, you know, aren't really invested in the midterm yet. Um, you know, we, I think that that kind of a fight, especially if they obstruct a Trump appointee, is, you know, it has it has the unintended effort of getting Republicans involved in an election they aren't that enthusiastic about. Well, and it's an interesting calculation, right? They have the Republicans have 51 votes in the Senate. Senator McCain is back in Arizona being treated for brain cancer, which leaves them with uh, Vice President Pence as a tiebreaker. So they really can't afford to lose any moderate Republicans, assuming Democrats stick together. And I know that they um, are starting to, to talk about this. Today we heard Kamala Harris uh, on MSNBC speaking about what Democrats should sort of be pushing for as they watch this uh, potential nomination unfold. This has got to be one of, the, and we all need to understand this, to be one of the most serious fights that we have yet to have had with this president. And we cannot relent. We are going to have to fight to the, to the end to make sure that we can do anything and everything that is possible to require this president to choose a consensus pick. Easy for Kamala Harris, of course, to say that uh, she is not up for re-election this year, and she's also in a very blue state. But Jennifer Duffy, uh, you you uh, are looking at these senators, especially ones from red states who are up for re-election. What uh, do you think they're thinking about in terms of a decision as to whether to stick with their party or do what they think might be best for their own re-election and perhaps allow this uh, nomination by the president to go forward? Well, that's exactly right. There are four of them who sit in very red states, states that Trump carried by 19 points or more, who are in tough re-election campaigns. And I think their thought is, wow, I don't want to have to do this. <laughs> um, I, everybody's kind of 
they're kind of keeping their powder dry for now, you know, saying let's wait and see um, who he appoints. But their decision will not be easy. Um, and I think that Senator Schumer is, might have a hard time keeping um, all 49 Democrats in his camp. Well, I know that's something uh, that some conservative groups are looking for. I want to bring in Travis Weber now. He is the Family Research Council's director of the Center for Religious Liberty. He's joining us from uh, D.C. Uh, Travis, thanks for taking a moment to, to come in and do this. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So I just want to kind of get a sense from you of what the group you represent and other folks who are on um, the pro-life side of things are really looking for when we talk about this nomination and sort of what you guys hope maybe might be different from Kennedy, given that he was a swing vote on some issues around gay rights and abortion rights. Yes. I mean, I think what we are really looking for um, and a lot of the folks we work with are looking for is not a, a left or right justice, but a constitutionalist, someone who's going to interpret the Constitution according to the plain text and uh, the words in that in that document. So you know that's what we're going to be pushing for. That's um, that's the type of justice, the type of nominee that we're going to want to see from President Trump. And I believe he's pledged to nominate such a person. You know, when you look at Justice Kennedy's record. Um, he, he does, uh, you know, he, he did rule as an originalist faithfully in many, many cases. Uh, however, a lot of the more notorious social issues cases in which the Supreme Court stepped out of that role and sort of took a more active uh, legislative role, Justice Kennedy's known for siding with uh, the other, so the non-originalist on the court. And so that's the reason you know, we're really looking for someone more in the role of Justice Gorsuch, uh, someone more in the role of Justice Scalia uh, to fill this empty seat. So uh, women's rights groups, of course, are concerned that uh, abortion rights might become even more restricted or ev- or worse from their perspective, and they worry that Roe v. Wade could be overturned with a new justice. Based on what you know and what you're hoping for, are they right to worry about that? Well, I think um, they're right to worry about anything they may view as is something that's vulnerable when you look at the, the, the plain meaning of the text, the Constitution as it was originally meant to be read. Yeah, if something is, would, would not fall within that interpretive framework, sure, they can worry about it. But all I can say now is the framework we're approaching this through is, through someone, are you going to interpret the cases or the, the text of the Constitution to decide the case before you? Or are you going to try to create sweeping law reaching far beyond the parties before the court that's the type of, of issue we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking for someone who's going to say, I will keep the proper limited judicial rule, decide the case before me, and we'll have to see what cases arise before the court, whether it concerns abortion or anything else. We've, we've yet to see there are a lot of cases pending at the search stage right now, but obviously in the years to come that'll change. Travis, before I let you go, I'm just curious, you know, the the issue before this monumental news today that's really gripped the, the nation has been around immigration and these family separations at the border. Um, Justice Kennedy did uphold, vote to uphold the travel ban uh, this week. And in his concurring opinion, he talked about this idea of, of, of respecting the Constitution's meaning and promise. I'm just curious, is, is your group, is that an issue that is important to the people that you're representing when we talk about the immigration issue? And, and you know, it's the Family Research Council. We're talking about families right now. Yeah, so so we're concerned as a matter of constitutional interpretation with an originalist approach to that document on any case before the court. So we take a strict legal view. 
of, of um, you know, of, of when you look at Supreme Court justices and kind of how you deal with that. Obviously, as a Christian organization, we're, we're concerned with policy in a number of areas, pro-life issues, family issues, religious freedom, um, and, and we're, we're interested in advocating for those issues uh, wherever, wherever, we can, wherever we can advance them. The issue of immigration, obviously, is a, is a big and complex issue. I think broadly speaking, when you look at the ruling the other day, which Justice Kennedy, I think, got it right, looked at the broad deference given the executive, whether it was the Obama administration, the Trump administration, any administration has broad authority to regulate the safety of the country. That's really not disputable. Um, and I think there's a lot of hype around that that's kind of separate from the decision. So I would say he got that decision right. Um, and it really the more important issue there is, is the the constitutionality and, and the legality of statutory authority under the, the laws pertaining to that case. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but yes, to get to your point, you know, we we advocate on, on our positions from a Christian perspective in any area that comes before us. Okay. Well, Travis Weber, thank you so much. Travis is with the Family Research Council. Um, and Jessica Levinson, uh, Loyola Law School professor, I want to go back to you um, specifically on this issue of abortion rights and, and sort of what you're watching in terms of this retirement and the broader sort of landscape around just, you know, courts and ju- judicial appointments under Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the first thing I would say is in terms of the broader landscape that President Trump, along with his team, has been enormously effective at packing the federal courts. And I think that people say that President Trump has had trouble with his legislative agenda, that they've had a number of other missteps. But if you look at the speed with which they have nominated and gotten confirmed so many lower court judges, I mean, President Trump really could step down 30 seconds from now and we would feel his impact for the rest of our lifetimes. And now, you know, today with Justice Kennedy's retirement, that's even more so. Now, with respect to abortion rights, I think there's kind of two schools of thought. On the one hand, we could see just an acceleration of what we're continuing to see, which is this kind of death by a thousand paper cuts approach. Now, we all talk about Roe v. Wade, but the controlling case really is a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that talks about something called the undue burden test. And so for decades now, what the court has been analyzing is whether these restrictions, such as eliminating clinics, such as making it more difficult for doctors to perform abortions, whether or not these restrictions are a quote-unquote undue burden. And in many cases, the court has said that it's not when, in fact, it makes it much more difficult for women to get access to abortions. And so I think that we'll see an acceleration of these cases that kind of chip away at the essential holding of Casey. But what we could also see is a state that says, I'm looking at the Supreme Court. This is a conservative court now. It's unquestionably conservative. And we're going to pass a law that quite clearly would contravene the essential holding of this controlling president, Casey. And we're going to take our chances with the Supreme Court. And I think that's what people quite rightly fear. Now, at that point, the question is not do the conservative judges on the Supreme Court believe in and want to support abortion rights, it's will they uphold their past precedent? And every Supreme Court justice who's currently sitting on the court has a very mixed um, 
have sent mixed signals when it comes to when they're going to support stare decisis and when they're going to say, you know what, the past cases are just unworkable and wrong. Well, I talked to Crystal Strait earlier today. She's president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California, and um, she seems very worried about what this retirement will mean. With everything that's happened under Donald Trump, with having someone as president who clearly has his feelings and acts to grind with women and sexual and reproductive health care, I think there's always this thought that at least we have the Supreme Court, right? We might not have Congress. We might barely have support in the Senate, but we have the Supreme Court. And I think um, today really uh, took a lot of people's breath away at kind of recognizing you know, just when you thought it couldn't get worse or more dangerous, it, it really did today. So, Jennifer Duffy, you were saying earlier that Congress is more focused on sort of the next step when it comes to the nomination. But clearly, advocacy groups are already organizing to try to put pressure on both sides. Oh, absolutely. But I, I think that, um, you know, the first re- the first reaction was was shock. And then and, and figuring out what the mechanism is. I mean, I expect by tomorrow you'll certainly see um, a lot of Democratic senators talking about that. I think candidates are going to start, you know, they're going to start asking the question. Um, so it, it, it is going to come up. I mean, it, but this was fairly new. They went from fighting over immigration and a farm bill to a Supreme Court fight, you know, in a about 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Dean Schwartz, uh, we're short on time, but uh, just quickly, uh, you know, there's a sense in California sometimes that if you are more liberal, that you're sort of protected by the fact that this is a deep blue state. Uh, we're not going to be outlawing abortion anytime soon. From where you sit uh, as dean of the law school, how how much reassurance should that give people? I think it should give quite a bit of reassurance to the people in California. Um but uh, just a year and a half ago, I was in Arkansas. It wouldn't give as much reassurance to people in places like Arkansas. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. I want to thank all of our guests, uh, Michael Hunter Schwartz, who's dean of McGeorge School of Law, where Justice Kennedy uh, grew up in Sacramento there and often teaches. Uh, Jessica Levinson, law professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. Jennifer Duffy, uh, she's the senior editor of the Cook Political Report covering the Senate in D.C. And Travis Weber, earlier in the hour, uh, Family Research Council's director of the Center for Religious Liberty. That does it for this special edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. And we'll be back tomorrow night with our regular show. Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg will be here with us to discuss his efforts to fight homelessness. In the meantime, you can find all our past shows at Apple Podcasts, and you can also rate, review, and please subscribe to The Breakdown there. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer tonight is Rob Spaeth. Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor. And Holly Kernan is our vice president of news. Special thanks to KQED producer Nina Thorson and our own Sacramento politics reporter Katie Orr for helping out tonight. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me at M. Lagos. That is a wrap for the special edition of Political Breakdown from KQED. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. 
Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.